This is The Future Of, where experts share their vision of the future and how their work is helping shape it for the better. I'm David Blaney. Australians love meat. We consume 110 kilos of meat every year on average. But that love comes at a cost, both to our bodies and our planet. Meat has been linked to cancers, chronic diseases and antibiotic resistance, as well as loss of biodiversity, carbon emissions and water and land degradation. With me today to discuss how we can undo this carnivorous carnage are researchers Professor Dora Maranova from the Curtin University Sustainability Policy Institute and Talia Raffaelli. Thank you very much for coming in, Dora and Talia. Thanks a lot for inviting us. It is such an interesting topic that actually a lot of people are reluctant to contemplate and think that uh, our uh, food choice is our own right without looking at the implication that this has for the environment or for the public health system. So, Dorian Talia, you've both co-authored an award-winning book about the booming meat alternatives market. Dora, could tofu really replace the uh, the sausage as the as the staple barbecue food? Bit of a loaded question, but yes, you're talking you're talking about Australia uh, yeah. because tofu has been a very popular food choice for millennia in countries such as uh, China or Indonesia. Uh, Australians have a little bit of prejudice towards tofu and they would love to have their barbecue steak or sausages in, in, instead of tofu. But having said that, at the moment there are so many sausages that taste exactly like the usual sausage and people wouldn't even know the difference if somebody gives them after it has been on, on the barbecue. Uh, whether we uh, replace uh, what we have used until now with new alternatives or traditional alternatives depends on a lot on our taste preferences, but also how much awareness there is about the implications of the food uh, that we take. And I've already mentioned the fact that uh, environment is a big concern when it comes to consumption of uh, meat and also health considerations are a big concern. How much meat do we need as part of a healthy diet and how much are we eating at the moment? Well, we're eating 110 kilos uh, per year. I'm not sure how that sort of my math skills aren't great, so I don't know how that goes down on, onto a smaller basis. But how, how much meat should we be eating? Are we eating at least two kilos a week on average per person? And we should be eating less than 500 grams a week per person. So that we're busting it by four times? At least, um, on average. Uh, what I want to add is that uh, the average obviously takes in con into consideration all the people who don't eat meat altogether. So people who eat meat tend to eat much higher amounts than the ones than the limit that is put in the in the Australian dietary guidelines. And the reason that there is a limit is because of the health impacts. The, the Australian dietary guidelines do not take into consideration the environmental impacts. They only look at the health impacts. And that limit of 455 grams per week is entirely based on the medical evidence that high amounts are causing non-communicable diseases as colorectal cancer, diabetes type 2, etc. 
And when we look at not only the dietary impacts, or the public health impacts, but also the environmental impacts, um, should we be eating even less than that? Um, that's, that's a very interesting question. I think any reduction in consumption will have positive environmental benefits because the impact of meat consumption and production is so significant. Uh, a study done a few years ago showed that if we globally reduce our meat consumption by just 25%, so we just quarter our global meat production and consumption, we will achieve an instant 12.5% reduction in global gas emissions. In Kyoto, the world was coming together purely to try and achieve a 12.5% reduction as a means of ending climate change and all its negative consequences. So in fact, if we only reduce our meat consumption from the 200 the, the two kilos a week that we typically eat in Australia to a quarter of it, to the 500 grams. Not only are we then meeting the Australian guidelines for healthy consumption, safe consumption, and mitigating the health dangers, but we're also bringing climate reduction, climate impact and reduction down to the, the, the levels we're trying to achieve at Kyoto. So even a 25% reduction, just a 25% reduction, will have significant environmental advantages and health advantages. The, uh, there was a big study published by the Lancet, the Eat Lancet Commission, where the recommendation is actually down to 45 grams per day. And this is global, global rec recommendation. Well, the Australian guidelines are sitting at 65 grams per day. So the, uh, the Lancet is the mo most prestigious medical journal, and that recommends 45 grams per day. Why is there this, uh, this gap between the, the Lancet amount and the amount in the dietary guidelines? The Lancet amount takes into consideration environmental and health benefits together, while ours are only looking at the health benefits. And that is because Australia is still struggling to account for agricultural emissions. So when we look at carbon trading and all the mitigation of carbon methodologies, we don't account for agricultural emissions. So we don't recognise the impact of food choices and food production on our carbon, on our national carbon emissions at all, yet. Only energy and um, and resources, for example. Transport, urbanisation, etc. But we don't buildings, buildings but not the food. Cities. But not the food. And that's the most significant contributor. There is no greater contributor. And within the food contributions, livestock production is the greatest contributor by far. A big issue, which is linked to uh, the consumption of animal-based products, is something that is described as land conversion, because we are constantly uh, getting rid of native vegetation, replacing it with areas that are suitable for grazing of, of livestock. Uh, I often get questions such as, wow, that's unproductive land. Uh, yes, it is unproductive as far as food is concerned, but it's actually very valuable uh, land for our biodiversity, for our native vegetation, for our native species. And this is happening across the entire globe, not just, not just in Australia. At the moment, out of all the uh, available landmass that we have on this planet, 27% is used by livestock for grazing and also for feed production for livestock. This compares to only 7% used to grow crops for direct human, um, human consumption. So we are actually wasting 
the opportunity to maintain the biodiversity that this planet has by producing more and more uh, livestock and animal-based products. And so the, the environmental impact is, is greater than just climate change. As significant as climate change is, it also impacts other aspects of the environment. Oh, the environmental impacts of meat production are greater than any other cause of environmental degradation. Um, there's global warming, there is devastation of, of coral reefs, fertilisers and, and water pollution, and pollution flowing off the land. Um, the pollution um, coming off abattoirs ends up in massive toxic cesspools um, all over the world. There's no way to dispose of that. Just if you stop and think for a second about the amount of waste produced by um, defecation, if you've got one, 110 billion animals on the planet at any given time and only 7.5 billion people, and think of a cow's poo versus a human poo, where's it all going? So human poo and stuff goes into sewerage, but what happens to the waste generated from animals? And then if you're slaughtering these vast, vast quantities of animals, there's blood, there's offal, there's all kinds of stuff that we actually don't take back and use in any way that has to go into some form of storage. So the pollution impacts of that are vast. And um, the runoff from fertilizers and grazing used for producing feedstock is, is, is very strongly implicated in destruction of coral, re coral reefs. Um, the loss of biodiversity is probably most greatly caused by the habitat destruction required for the production of meat. So Dora, I think that I've covered, I mean, we look at water pollution, land pollution, air pollution, uh, loss of biodiversity, uh, habitat destruction, mm. all of those are primarily caused by meat production. That, that's true. Uh, the, the other point that I want to make is that they're linked. You cannot separate climate change from other changes that are happening in the environment, particularly with land clearing. If we are clearing trees to grow soybeans uh, to feed pigs in China, uh, that means that we are reducing the ability of the planet to um, clear the air uh, through uh, the forest, the lungs of the, of the planet. So we are constantly reducing the tree coverage on this planet and replacing it uh, with crops that are uh, entirely grown to feed, to feed livestock. And of course the impact on groundwater and the water table yeah. as well. Um, what are some of the challenges when it comes to, because it, it seems like we, for our health and for our environment, we all should be, uh, cut, well, at the very least, cutting down on the amount of meat that we eat, if not switching away from it entirely. What's stopping us from it? People love the taste of meat for one reason or another. They're quite used, used to that. And this is why I was stressing that when the new alternative stays the same, that's not a big price to pay. But there is also a lot of, um, a lot of vested interests that uh, compel people uh, to go for uh, animal-based options and meat. I don't know whether you've noticed on the buses, in the shopping centres, there are constantly advertisements, like our um, space uh, is uh, inundated by uh, advertisements that promote a behaviour which is uh, destructive to the environment and um, to, to the public health system. Mm, for example, you will never lamb alone. So we replace the word it with lamb 
assuming that this is the only way we can socialize. Um, and uh, uh, one of the books that we've written was about social marketing. Uh, we're very used to campaigns against alcohol consumption uh, um, for skin cancer prevention, but we actually are not doing anything to elude people that high meat consumption is a huge risk factor. In fact, we're doing the opposite. You know, if you don't eat meat, you're an Australian. Uh, we have ambassadors. Um, so it's very, very closely linked to our sense of national identity. Um, in pre, pre, in sort of feudal England and feudal Europe, people, the poor, pe poor people didn't get much meat on their plate. It was a luxury. Whereas the bourgeoisie, the aristocracy ate a lot of meat, three, four pounds a day. So it became associated with power, affluence, uh, domination, masculinity, um, wealth. And so people aspire to achieving those things. And we've perpetuated, we continue to perpetuate that, that, that myth that if you, if you want to be, you know, the developing world needs to be strong, they need to eat more meat because be like the West if you want to be the best. And so with all of it, domination, power, abundance, affluence, wealth, prestige, is all, and nationalism is all so closely tied up with meat consumption and you even talk about couch potatoes as lazy. We talk about vegetables as disabled. You become a vegetable, you're disabled. You become a couch potato, you get fat and lazy. In every way, we are bombarded with subliminal and subconscious messages that make it very difficult to consider meat reduction. You mentioned that we have very robust public health campaigns with respect to not drinking too much, not smoking, uh, from you know both from government uh, health departments and also from NGOs how come we don't see this sort of push with respect to meat I haven't seen a um, you know a, a quit line equivalent for meat I haven't seen a, an ad on a bus telling me not to eat meat at least not one from a from a, a government organization or from a health department why is this the case um... I don't really know the answer. Um, there is an increasing awareness among the medical profession about the detrimental impacts of meat, of meat consumption. Uh, and a lot of doctors, uh, the first lecture that they get at uni talks about restricting, restricting meat consumption. But we have not gone in a very aggressive way of trying to inform the general public. Uh, part of it is because this link that Talia was talking about, the culture uh, and the expectation that we are Australian, therefore we, we eat meat. The, uh, the, the other thing is the link between uh, meat and masculinity. You know, we are men. If you want to be strong, you need to eat, you need to eat meat. Um, there are big vested interests by the livestock industry. That is, uh, most of the advertisements that we were referring to are actually paid by MLA, the Meat and Livestock Association uh, of, of Australia. So that's a very powerful organization. And there is, uh, there are also vested interests that are coming from the pharmaceutical industry. More than 50% of the antibiotics that are being used in Australia are used preventatively to livestock. Uh, so it is, a, it is a lobby which is probably as powerful, if not more powerful, than the fossil fuel lobby. 
Uh, however, we are now making so much progress in relation to replacing fossil fuels with renewable energy. I'm very optimistic that we'll see a similar shift very soon in relation in relation to food. But I think it goes even much, much further than that. I think there's a deliberate um, denial going on from government and industry. And I think that there's a history of it in Australia because, um, for example, the government of the day that in 2006, the CSIRO released a book called The Total Wellbeing Diet, which was fundamentally based on meat consumption. Just prior to the release of that book, the findings at the links between the, the high meat consumption and bowel cancer were absolutely clearly and evidently made clear. And it, it was discussed at board meeting at the CSIRO prior to publication and distribution of the book. Yet it wasn't mentioned in the book. And it, the book was touted as the total well-being diet and the way to be. Subsequently, high meat consumption has been so closely linked to bowel cancer that it's treated reduction in meat consumption as a mitigating factor is treated in the same way as reduction in smoking um, for lung cancer. And yet the government of the day sent out 2 million copies to schools, knowing full well what was going on, and promoting the CSRO's total well-being diet. So today, you look at the government today, we know that climate change is causing drought and impacting the livestock industry. We know that the livestock industry is causing drought. We know what's going on in that context. And yet our current government only talks about um, risk. Uh, what do they talk about? They talk about... They never talk about mitigation. They only talk about resilience Management. and adaptation. No, resilience and adaptation. So they talk resilience and adaptation, which means we're not going to do anything to fix the problem. We're not going to address the cause. We're just going to learn how to manage the symptoms. And if you've got governments that are talking about, let's not talk about the cause. Let's not be honest. Let's not be transparent. Let's only talk about dealing with the symptoms. You're not going to have a government that's supportive of bringing about the behavioural and attitudinal change needed to fundamentally save humanity. And it's, it's actually getting to the point where it's that serious, the duplicity um, that is prevalent based on vested interests, including short-term power interests, is bringing humanity to its knees. Could you tell me what flexitarianism is? Well, it was voted the most popular word for 2006. So it has been a word um, with us for quite a long time. Uh, and what it describes is a behaviour where people are trying to cut on their meat consumption without uh, being um, moving to becoming vegetarian or, or, or vegan. It's um, flexible vegetarianism. It's a flexible vegetarianism. The way we've um, defined this is reducing to healthy levels of, of, of meat consumption. Safe levels. Safe. Uh, and uh, flexitarianism seems to be something that is much more attractive to the average Australian because the average Australian doesn't like the idea that they're going to give up meat, meat completely, uh, but they're okay with reducing their, their meat consumption. Uh, so that experience that I've had is that there is a lot of uh, negative attitude towards uh, people who are completely giving up meat, but people are much more open to the idea of reducing their own um, meat, meat consumption. And when that reduction becomes directly linked through transparency to your footprint, your health footprint and your environmental footprint, I believe that people rather than government will increasingly start to make choices 
um, that that work in the interests of the greater good rather than the Western interest. Uh, well, I, I can see a similarity with the uptake of renewable energy. People started putting the solar PVs on their roofs. Uh, we'll see people deliberately reducing their, their meat consumption. Um, it's already fact that a lot of um, people are opting for soy milk rather than cow milk for their uh, cappuccino. Um, the statistics from New York show that 50% of the customers who buy takeaway coffees will buy it with uh, a plant uh, alternative. Uh, we are already seeing such a big shift here. Uh, almost any coffee shop will have the alternative. Only uh, almost every restaurant will be able to give you vegetarian and vegan and vegan options because people are now demanding that. So, so in some parts of the world, it's become compulsory to include vegan options on your menu. You're not allowed to get a restaurant license unless you have vegan options on your menu. Are alternatives like soy are better for the environment than... Um, the environmental footprint of soy is amazing compared to livestock. Um, soy belongs, on every, on every on the, yeah, uh, soy belongs to the group of legumes, which means that when you, uh, when you grow soy, soy, you actually help... Um, rebuild the nitrogen content of the, of, the, of the soil, so rather than put uh, artificial yes. fertilizer. Um, the other thing that soy is absolutely amazing is uh, quite often I've heard this argument, where are you going to get your proteins from? if you don't eat meat? Well, that's a good question. Then where are we going to get our protein and iron from? Uh, the proteins, there are 20 proteins, 11 of them are non-essential, which means that our body can make them from vegetables and fruit. Nine are essential, and soy is an example of a plant that has all essential proteins. So if you eat soy-based product, you get, you get all of these essential proteins. Protein is not even a problem with a vegetarian diet. Fibre is a problem with the meat-based diet, and fibre is causing far more childhood malaises, not diseases, malaises, discomforts, than uh, shortages of protein and things are ever going to cause in, our, in a society such as ours. You mean lack of fibre? Lack of fibre. Lack of fibre yeah. in the diet. Um, and lack of fibre is a big problem in meat consumption because meat has no fibre at all. But most plants, most nuts, legumes, um, and even a lot of the leafy green vegetables have very high iron, protein, and calcium contents. Plus, reinforced cereals have irons and proteins. There's no, there's absolutely no reason to believe the popular misconception that meat reduction means protein reduction or iron reduction at all. At all. There's no, there's no reason for meat reduction in any way to compromise protein intake or iron intake at all. We referred to soy several times, but, but there is also buckwheat, there is also quinoa, there are a lot of other legumes. And if you just, oh, com if, if you, yeah, if you just combine uh, beans and rice, you're already getting all the uh, essential proteins. Add a vitamin C yeah. to that, like an orange yeah. juice or tomato base, and your absorption of the iron is, is tripled. So you're getting more iron from that than you're getting from meat. And of course, if you have some fruit as well, with that, then you're getting some actual fibre as well. So, what should we? What can we do if we want to? If we're interested in, if we're a little bit carnivorous, or 
omnivorous and we want to, to start reducing our meat intake, what should I we be doing? I would say we should mainstream vegetarian options and even vegan options everywhere that's possible. Functions, flights, um, dinners at home. Uh, th think that this is perfectly okay. So that's not the exception. This is what we should be aiming to consume as the main way of uh, providing our our nutrition. So, so to me, this is uh, this is very important to change the perception as to what is good food because there are co-benefits. Good food is good for us as uh, individual species uh, for our health and it's also good, good for the planet. So I think that it's very important that we do this switch of thinking vegetarian food is a quality food, something that uh, can deliver everything that we need and will help us with good quality of life. And uh, one final question before we go. Both of you, as I mentioned at the beginning, you both uh, co-authored a book last year about the meat alternative market, which won an award, so uh, congratulations. Could you tell us a bit more about the, uh, about the book and what it aims to achieve? Um, the, the alternatives to meat have been around for millennia. So, however, what is now becoming very um, important is the, the fact that this is a booming uh, market where we see a lot of investment from people such as Bill Gates, Richard Branson. Uh, we are seeing the uh, lab meat uh, being uh, growing and reducing price. A burger that was 250,000 euros is now $11. Uh, so we've seen huge developments and huge investments that, that are happening there. Uh, and what we are trying to do with this book is show all the options that, that are available. Uh, and, uh, with, and that includes the plant-based as well um, as, well as uh, lab-grown, lab as well as insects, as well as fungi and, and, and other choices that have that have been around for a while. Um, it, it's very interesting that this market is the new market uh, where um, you have new products coming and then uh, they, customers are looking for that. Uh, people love to explore new, new tastes. Uh, and I'm very optimistic that uh, we will see this transition happening very soon because of uh, people being much more environmentally aware. We're seeing the global climate strikes. Kids now know much more than what, their, than what their parents know about, about food and about the environment. Okay, well, I think we'll, I think we'll wrap things up there. Thank you very much, Dora and Talia, for coming in and sharing your knowledge on this topic. Thanks for the invitation. It was a pleasure. It was an absolute pleasure talking with you. You've been listening to The Future Of, a podcast powered by Curtin University. If you have any questions about today's topic, please feel free to get in touch by following the links in the show notes. Bye for now.